Lord Jesus, we thank you for your amazing love to us. That you stepped into our world. That you suffered that we might be forgiven. Thank you that because of what you've done, we come here this morning as your brothers, your sisters, as sons of your father. And so we come this morning asking that you would speak to us, that you would show us more of your glory. Father, we ask that you would show us more of your son. We pray that by your spirit you would open our eyes, show us more of his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, Katie, I'm sorry I ran off and abandoned you during the first song. I, I saw my children arriving at the back, uh, having run ahead of my wife and feeling a little bit lost, uh, wanting to come and sit with me, so I went and snuck off to sit with them. Um, we live just down the A20 from you guys in Kemsey, um, in the shadow of the big smoke, which is Seven Oaks for us. Um, and um, so we live in a little village called Kemsey. Uh, my children are at the little village school there. We go to the little village um, church there. And, uh, and I work at Oak Hall, um, Otford Manor, which is just up the hill from where we are. And we organize Bible teaching camps for people in their 20s and 30s. And my particular role within Oak Hall is to make sure that we have enough Bible teachers um, and the right people heading out on all of our adventures that we run. We take about 10,000 people a year, uh, mostly in their 20s and 30s on adventures around the world, get the Bible open with them. But the problem with my job is that it's one that rewards failure. Because if I don't do my job properly, then something terrible happens. I have to go on holiday. And I have to go and teach the Bible on holiday in some glamorous location. So it's kind of a job that rewards failure. One time, uh, we, we, run, we used to run a trip called the South African Safari. I fly out to South Africa and uh, go and explore uh, kind of Botswana and Namibia um, and Zimbabwe. And, uh, and then back out of South Africa. And I honestly had looked really, really hard for a Bible teacher for this trip. But at the last minute, I didn't have a speaker, and so I had to go, and, uh, which was amazing. It was an amazing, amazing um, adventure. You know, it was um, lion dung in the, in, in, the, in the camp in the morning, and this sort of thing. I felt like kind of Biggles on some adventure in the, in the great unknown. And, uh, but, but the only problem was that as we were flying out of Heathrow, our flight was a bit delayed, and we were changing planes in, um, in, in Paris, in Charles de Gaulle, and uh, one of the um, guests that I was flying with was a bit nervous. She was saying, you know, Paul, um, are our bags going to make it? Because our connection is going to be really, really tight. And I was like, don't worry, don't worry. You're a French baggage handler's best in the world. It'll all be absolutely fine. And, um, and so we arrived in Paris, legged across to our plane, um, got the plane down to Johannesburg, and we're standing there by the baggage carousel and um, getting a bit nervous because her bags haven't come out. Then finally, her bags pop out. Last ones, her bags are there. And everyone, oh, my bags aren't there. Everyone's bags, except for mine, have arrived in Johannesburg. And I've made the rookie mistake of packing my sermon notes in my suitcase. And so basically, the group got, for 16 nights, Paul Mayo's favorite Bible passages that he can speak on without notes. Um, and one of those passages is... Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a passage that I go to time and time again. At the end of it, Paul says, you know, if, but Paul says, you know, if this life is all we're living for, then, um, you know, we should be pitied because, you know, actually we're living a hard life, Paul says. But, but there's a resurrection. There's a resurrection coming. So always give your life, always give yourself fully to the laborer, to, dear me, I can't remember the line. Last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And, uh, and so I started off by talking, sun setting over the Okavango Delta, beautiful, 
And um, I start off by talking about, you know, how, how if this life is all we've got, then we've got to get everything out of it that we can because, you know, we're, we're going to die. So let's eat and drink because tomorrow we die. Um, but that's not true. There's a resurrection. So always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. At the end of it, a lady came up to me and she said, Paul, I found that really helpful. And as a speaker, that is, that's like the best thing when someone says that to you. And uh, she said, I realize I've been giving myself, you know, too much to my local church. I realize I've been serving too wholeheartedly. But this life is all we've got, isn't it? We've got to get out of it all that we can. And basically, she'd, she'd fallen asleep at the end of my introduction. And she'd gone away with the opposite of what I was trying to say. And, and, and I felt really discouraged because I thought, here I am organizing these Bible teaching camps. People are studying the Bible together. And they're going away with the opposite of, of what the speaker means to say. What is the point in this? And I don't know about you, but I battle with discouragement quite a lot. I frequently get very discouraged. I look at our world. I look at the news. I see so much pain, so much suffering, so much horror. And I think this is just awful. I think I pray for this world, and yet it feels like nothing changes. I, I look around my village. I look at, you know, my, my, my daughter is, has just finished primary school, gone to secondary school, and I've been trying to get alongside our friends at school the whole time through and introduce them to Jesus. Don't feel like I've got anywhere at all. And so we're running Christianity Explored next week, like you guys are. We're starting next, next Sunday afternoon. Um, and I think, can I really be bothered to invite my friends? Can I really be bothered? Do you know what I mean? Because frankly, if, even if they come, is anything going to happen? I've been praying for them for years, and it feels like nothing's happening. But then most of all, I get discouraged. I get discouraged because I look at myself. Now, I'm, I'm 42, and when I was 15, I thought I'd be pretty godly by the time I was 30. But here I am, 42, and I am still struggling with so much sin. I am still such a mess. And I think, you know, is it worth reading my Bible? Is it worth getting along to church? Is it worth trying to change? Because it feels like my, my, my progress towards Christ-likeness is so glacially slow. And I just feel like giving up quite a lot of the time. I get, I get profoundly discouraged. And at times like that, I love Isaiah chapters 40 to 55. It, it's where it's my go-to chunk of the Bible when I'm discouraged. Because in Isaiah 40, 55, God's people have messed up so badly and they are in such a discouraging state of affairs. They have messed up so badly, they've been kicked out of their country and they have ended up in exile in Babylon, digging irrigation canals for the king of Babylon. And, 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 and God's speaking to them. He's speaking to a future generation. So Isaiah's preaching this. He's preached this through Isaiah 1 to 39. You've made a mess of things, you're going into exile. But then chapters 40 to 55, he starts to address this future generation to equip them to live through that discouraging time and, in fact, to equip his peers to live as they face the fact that the next thing on the schedule for them is going into exile in Babylon. And, and God does all sorts of things in Isaiah 40 to 55 to encourage the people. But, but what he does that, for me, is most precious is he gives us four amazing glimpses of the Lord Jesus 700 years before he came. Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah chapter 50, uh, and most famously, which we'll be looking at tonight, Isaiah 53. And, and in 42 
and 53, we hear the Father describing the Lord Jesus to us. And it's an amazingly rich, intimate portrait of the Lord Jesus 700 years before he came. But, but in 49 and 50, we get something that I find even more amazing. We get to overhear the internal monologue of the Lord Jesus 700 years before he came. And in it, I find three things, three things that help me when I am discouraged. Three things that help me when I'm discouraged. And the first one is in verses one to three, and it's that, that Jesus is God's weapon of choice. Jesus is God's weapon of choice. Verses one to three. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. So Jesus is telling the world why everyone should pay attention to him. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Now, this might make you think of Jeremiah 1 verse 5. We just flip forward a few pages to Jeremiah 1 verse 5. God says something very similar to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, why does God let us overhear him saying that to Jeremiah? That was a very intimate thing for God to say to Jeremiah. But why does God let us overhear it? Well, it's because he wants us to know, and he wanted Jeremiah's generation to know, that Jeremiah is not just some random good communicator. Jeremiah is God's chosen means of speaking to that generation. It's God's purpose that they should listen to him. Now, the Lord Jesus, is that true of him? Yes, even more so. His, his name was announced, wasn't it? Uh, through the angel Gabriel before he was born. Um, angels appeared in vast numbers at his birth to proclaim his birth. And in fact, even more than that, since he's the lamb slain since before the creation of the world, it was always God's intention that he would save the world through the Lord Jesus. It's always been God's purpose that we would learn about him through gazing on the glory of the Lord Jesus. So this is, um, this is God's purpose. And then, but it's interesting, verse 2, he isn't just God's chosen means of speaking to the world. He's a powerful means. If you look at verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. Jesus' mouth, we're told here, is, 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 is like a picture of a big broadsword with an edge as sharp as a razor. That is what, that is what the mouth of Jesus is like, we're told here. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? But it's what we see in his life. The words of Jesus come with incredible power and force. Think about it for a minute. Here is a bunch of guys. They've invested all their savings in a boat. They're in a partnership together, two brothers. They're running this business. And then Jesus walks past and he says, come follow me. And instantly they get up and they follow him. Leave it all behind. It's because the words of Jesus. Well, here's Zacchaeus, a man who all his life has worshipped money. All he cares about is money. He exploits people. He rips them off, has lunch with Jesus, and suddenly he's giving half his wealth away and paying back people four times what he owes them. He doesn't care about any money anymore. He's met Jesus. Well, think about his hometown. He comes and preaches in his hometown. Probably a building about this sort of size. Everyone's pleased to see him to start with. But then his words expose their hearts, and they want to grab him and throw him off a cliff. The words of Jesus come with incredible power, like a broadsword with an edge as sharp as a razor. 
And, and if you look at the next image, he made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. If you go up to Bloomsbury, up to the British Museum in London, you can see Assyrian soldiers with their polished arrows. They did this at the time of Isaiah polish them to make them fly more straight and more true. And in the, in the British Museum, in, in room 11, you can see them out hunting. Uh, and they're hunting, um, and it's quite amazing what they're hunting, they're hunting lions. And that's amazing, isn't it? They are shooting lions with arrows, and, and the arrows are piercing and cracking open the skull of these lions. It's, it's very, very vivid, these wolf carvings up in room 11 of the British Museum. And and I find that very encouraging because that tells me about the, the force and the power of Jesus' words. What is it that is going to be powerful enough to get through, you know, the skulls of my friends who seem so resistant? It's going to be the words of Jesus. What is it? That's, that's, that's why it's worth being Christianity Explored and confronting them with the words of Jesus. What is it actually that will get through my own very, very thick skull, very, very hard heart? that seems so impenetrable to truth and reality. It's this. It's the words of Jesus. This whole book is the words of Jesus. Let's bring ourselves to it. It's, it's God's chosen means, God's powerful means of communication to us. It's the Lord Jesus. Now, why is, why is this? Well, it's because of verse 3. Look at verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. What was the purpose of the nation of Israel? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why did God choose a people for himself, put them in a land in the Old Testament? What was his purpose in that? Well, it was to display his glory. The idea was that nations round about would be so attracted and drawn in by the beauty of what they saw going on there that they'd be drawn to the Lord. But in chapter 42, God says, actually, Israel just brought shame and disgrace to me. That was God's evaluation of Isaiah's generation. But Jesus, he will be what Israel should have been, the theater of God's glory, the place where God's glory is seen. Do you remember what happened when um, Philip asked Jesus at the Last Supper, just show us the Father's glory, and that'll be enough for us. Just show us the Father's glory. What did he say? He said, haven't you seen me? Haven't you seen me? Haven't you spent time with me? Don't you know who I am? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father's glory. He fully, perfectly reveals God's glory. That is why it's worth getting up early to read the Bible. That's why it's worth bringing our friends to the words of the Bible. That's why it's worth trying to live in a way that shows the character of Jesus to those around us because that is where they see God's glory. Jesus is God's weapon of choice, his chosen means of showing his glory to the world, which makes verse 4 absolutely shocking. Look at verse 4. It makes verse 4 almost incomprehensible and, and hard to believe. Look at verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Jesus battled intense discouragement, that seems to say. Now, I, I know what it is like to say verse 4. I, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. I remember being on one of our ski trips in Switzerland when I was 21 at Christmas, sitting on the um, washing machines in the basement at two o'clock in the morning, feeling utterly like I was wasting my time. I was um, 
teaching the Bible each evening to this group of people, but it felt like I had a bin bag over my head and my words weren't getting beyond the first row. And because it was a Christian event, no one was sitting in the first row because no one ever does. Um, and, and, and it just felt like such a waste of time. Every night there were less and less people at the meeting. I've spent my strength in vain. I've labored for nothing at all. And sometimes I look around my, my village and I, I, feel, I feel the same. I feel the same. I feel, what am I achieving here? But is it true that Jesus knew that feeling? It feels a bit intense to say that Jesus, that God in skin, walking on this earth, knew that feeling. And yet when I look at Jesus as I meet him in the Gospels, it's not so surprising, is it, that he would know how that feels? Because Jesus, as I meet him in the Gospels, is yes, 100% God, 100%, but also he is 100% human. His humanity doesn't dilute and decrease his, his divinity, his godness, but, but equally his divinity does not dilute and decrease his humanity. Now, remember, you know, he, he's clearly God. He, he stands up and speaks to a storm, and, and the wind and waves lie down like an obedient dog hearing the voice of their master. He, he is clearly God. He, he, he speaks to a friend who is dead in the grave, and his friend walks out. He is clearly God. And yet, what is he doing in the minutes before he does those things? In the minutes before he calms the, 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 the storm, what is he doing? He is, remember, he is sleeping. He is sleeping, not pretending to be asleep, sleeping. Because he has a real human body that gets really tired. Um, and, and, and in the moments before he is, he, he's calls his friend out of the grave, what is he doing? He is weeping. Again, not pretending to cry, but genuinely weeping in sorrow. He had real human emotions. He experienced real emotional pain. And, and he experienced the most discouraging situations that one could ever experience. Remember how his, his home village treated him when he went and preached there? They wanted to kill him. Remember his disciples, their level of understanding of his teaching. Imagine what it is like to be investing deeply, deeply in 12 guys, just 12, taking them with you, teaching them, telling them, you know, to walk in your way of suffering and service, take up your cross. I'm going to Jerusalem to die and I'm, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and be tortured to death. And then they come up to him and say, well, could we have the special seats next to you on the day that you get to Jerusalem and everything works out great. They haven't been listening to a word he's been saying. They've, they've not been paying any attention to it. And then, I mean, he's, he's out preaching and his, his family turn up. His mother and his brothers turn up. And why have they come? They've come to take him home because they think he's gone mad. Remember that in the Gospel of Mark? They, they, they think he's had too much sun. They, need, they, come and they come to take charge of him and take him home. Imagine if my mum's golden Prius pulled up outside the front there and she came in. Come on, come on. Be incredibly discouraging. And, and of course, worst of all, there he is in the courtyard of the occupying power. He's been beaten. His blood is all over the floor. And he's only there because one of these 12 guys that he's loved and he's invested in 
have decided that he's not worth, he's not worth anything. They'd rather have money than him. Uh, and he's handed him over to them with a kiss. And now he's there beaten. Everyone else has run away. And outside there's a crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Torture him to death in the most painful way you possibly can. At that moment, Jesus looks like a complete failure, doesn't he? At that moment, it looks like his work has achieved absolutely nothing, that he has spent his strength in vain. He has labored for nothing at all. That is exactly how it looks on Good Friday. And Jesus experienced all of that with a fully human mind and a fully human body, the same emotions we would have had, a deeper love of righteousness, a deeper hatred of wickedness, but the same emotional vulnerability that we have. And that is, I think, very, very encouraging. I find that very, very encouraging. Firstly, because it means that the battle with discouragement is not in itself sinful. I remember um, one day when I was in London, there was a very good student worker at All Souls called Tom Parsons at the time. I was at King's, uh, not going to All Souls with Tom actually, but never mind. Um, but I was um, just down the road uh, and, and I was walking into college from my university hall to residence feeling very, very discouraged. I'd left behind a bunch of um, my non-Christian friends who'd been laughing at me about Christianity. I was going to a tutorial with a theology tutor who the week before had mocked me for believing that Jesus is God. And, um, and I knew that evening I was going to be chairing a Christian union meeting where everyone was ripping each other apart on issues that didn't really matter, given that we had 20,000 people that didn't know Jesus around the week. And I felt profoundly, profoundly discouraged as I walked in. But then I looked across to the other side of the road, and I saw someone walking along on the other side of the road who wouldn't have known who I was, but I'd read his books, I'd seen the impact that his ministry had had on London. And he was walking along like this, looking worse than I felt. And that really cheered me up. Because I thought, if he's allowed to feel like that, then I'm allowed to feel like this. The battle with discouragement is not in itself sinful. Sometimes I get discouraged, and I get discouraged that I'm discouraged. Um, but actually, the battle with discouragement is not in itself sinful. It's part of the normal Christian walk, of walk, taking up our cross, walking in Jesus' footsteps. Apparent fruitlessness is how it will sometimes look. And that's okay. The battle with discouragement is not in itself sin. But secondly, it's encouraging because it means that when I come to talk to Jesus, I talk to someone who understands my battle, who understands my battle. I, um, I don't know if you've ever had that experience of talking to someone about something that really hurts, like a breakup, a bereavement, some ongoing battle with sin, and they're standing there saying, yeah, yeah, mm, yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, totally, sure, absolutely. And you're thinking, no, you don't get it at all. Everything about your body language, everything about the advice you're giving me tells me you have no clue what I'm talking about. But then I hope you've had the experience of going to speak to someone else. And as you speak to them, it's like they're in your head themselves. And they fully get it. And it's, it's really easy to talk to them. And it's really encouraging to talk to them. And they're really helpful as you talk to them. And you realize why. It's because they have walked where I am. They understand what I am going through. Well, Jesus, he is like the second person. When you come to pray, you come to speak to someone who gets it, who gets the battle with discouragement, who gets what a life that is apparently fruitless looks like. He gets it. Isn't that good? We can talk to him and know that he understands. But thirdly, thirdly, we can imitate him because he's not crushed 
by this discouragement. Do you see that? In um, 49 verse 4, he's not crushed by the discouragement. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet, what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. Yet. Isn't that beautiful? What is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. Jesus isn't crushed by discouragement. No, no one takes his life from him, does he? He could call down legions of angels, and the suffering would be over as he stands there in the courtyard. But he doesn't. Because he knows that Good Friday is not the day when we see the universe as it really is. Jesus knows that beyond Good Friday is Easter Sunday. Beyond Easter Sunday is Judgment Day. Jesus knows that he will be raised above all powers and all authorities. And his suffering will have purpose. It will save us. And so for the joy set before him, he goes to the cross, enduring its shame, that we might be saved. Now, we can imitate him. We can imitate him. We can lift our eyes beyond now, and we can say, today is not judgment day. Today is just another messy day when we don't see the way that things really are. But on judgment day, then my reward will be in the Lord's hand. Then it will be worthwhile. And on judgment day, I am utterly confident that you will see fruit from your life if you've lived for Jesus, if you've pointed people to the words of Jesus, to the character of Jesus, because of verses 5 to 7. Verses 5 to 7 tells us that Jesus will triumph worldwide. Jesus will triumph worldwide. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says... It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The Father is not content for Jesus to simply save one ethnic group. Jesus is going to save people from all over the world. This is what the Lord says. The Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down. Right now, Jesus is despised on Good Friday. On that day, he's being mocked at by the crowd. And Pilate doesn't even have time to listen to his answer when he asks him what is true. But after that comes Resurrection Day. After that comes people from around the world coming to put their trust in Jesus. And finally there will come Judgment Day when all will bow before him. All will bow before him. Why? End of verse 7. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen. This is why. Because this is the project that the Father is utterly committed to. It's seeing people glorifying Jesus. It's seeing Jesus being the conscious focus of saving faith for billions of people for eternity. That is the project the Father is working on. That is what he is committed to. We are familiar with the phrase, aren't we? The value of investments may go down as well as up. Everything in this world is so unsure, so temporary, so unreliable. But not this. This is the project that God is committed to, seeing people honoring Jesus. This is where it's worth us 
investing our lives. To always give ourselves to the work of the Lord because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because it is the project that he is working on. So is it worth me seeking to become more like Christ? Yes. Is it worth me to introduce my friends to Jesus? Yes. Is it worth me praying for this suffering, broken world? Yes. Because God is committed to seeing people come and put their faith in the Lord Jesus. So yeah, the battle with discouragement is real. It's something I struggle with. It's something that Jesus knew. But we can be utterly confident that God has chosen Jesus. He has chosen that Jesus will be ours. So let's give our lives to this project. Because this is the way that we will see a fruitful and worthwhile life. Let's pray. Lord, we do battle with discouragement. Lord, so often we don't see the fruit of our labors. We don't see many people turning to Jesus that we'd love to see. Our hearts grieve over our friends and we ask that you would open their eyes. Lord, we pray that you would help us to imitate the Lord Jesus. To know that our labor in you will never be in vain. We pray that we would always give ourselves fully to your work trusting in you for the fruit, pointing people to the character of Jesus in the way that we live, bringing people to his words, and bringing ourselves to fix our eyes on him, to listen carefully to him, and so to see your glory and be transformed. Amen.